Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to We're All Gonna Die Radio, your favorite apocalyptic podcast in which we talk about issues to scare the crap out of you. And this week, we're really going to take that extremely seriously. Uh, I am joined, I'm David Rothkopf, one of the co-hosts, joined uh, as ever by John Wolstall, the man who gave We're All Gonna Die Radio its name and its spirit. How are you doing, John? I'm, I'm good, David. Um, and we are also joined by our friend, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, who is the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at CNS. Before coming to CNS, he was the director of the Nuclear Strategy and Nonproliferation Initiative at the New America Foundation. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm great. How are you? Oh, excellent. Well, I'll tell you, I'm not so good. Uh, let me. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to take that question seriously. At the beginning <laughs> of this week, we had an event, and um, uh, we had uh, uh, Jake Sullivan there, and so I was asking him some questions, and then we took some questions from the audience, and I made the mistake of handing the microphone to John, who was in the front row of the audience, uh, and he proceeded to ask a question, which I will allow him to characterize in a moment, um, about you know how things are structured with regard to nuclear command and control in the U.S. government. And it was so frightening that Jake Sullivan said, oh, my God, we really have to do something about that. <laughs> and he went back and he, I think, you know, tasked somebody to deal with this issue um, but before we get too far into that, why don't you characterize, John, what the exchange was like? Um, well, sure, David. And let me just say, even though um, Hanukkah is over, I feel like I'm getting an extra Hanukkah gift um, because, you know, getting to use the pod to talk about one of my um, scariest scenarios, um, which is handing the nuclear weapon codes back over to an unstable president um, and what we can do about it, um, it you know. It, it gets me up in the morning. So, um, well, so it's a happy I, ninth day of Hanukkah to you. Yeah, right, exactly. So we're going to change the menorahs just, just for everybody here. Um, or it's an early Christmas gift for Jeffrey. So, you know, it, it works both ways. Um, so it we have been aware for quite some time uh, that the president is sort of a nuclear monarch. Uh, he or she can order the use of nuclear weapons. He doesn't need to tell the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs or even the Commander of Strategic Command. He can just pick up the phone, 
call the nuclear watch center at the Pentagon and instruct a one-star general to issue a launch order. And um, I asked uh, Jake Sullivan whether, um, given everything that the Biden administration has been doing to try to manage nuclear risks, this was really a system that we wanted to perpetuate. And I was somewhat veiled in saying, oh yeah, and by the way, Donald Trump is the front runner to become president, uh, at least the Republican nominee. And it seems like handing him unfettered rights to use nuclear weapons is a, let's put it um, bluntly, a really terrible idea. Um, but uh, I've raised this issue with the government uh, over the last year and have gotten nowhere because the Pentagon and Stratcom um, are pretty confident in the way they do things and don't really feel like they want to change. But so, now that you're affiliated with Deep State Radio, you the, get the action. Power, <laughs> the, the power and authority vested in me clearly is driving. And and I have heard from colleagues in the government that, in fact, uh, Jake did go back and task the NSC to sort of dig into this. Um, and this conversation, I think, is is part of that process, that there's some transparency that's required here. Because I think, as, as Jeffrey and you both know very well, the public thinks that there's a robust system to protect against these uh, dangers. And in fact, as we've learned in history... Um, occasionally people have to insert themselves illegally into the chain of command uh, to put these safeguards in place. And that's why I was thrilled Jeffrey wanted to join because he knows some of these episodes as well or better uh, than I do. And David, you actually have working experience with some of the people that have been involved in this as well. Thank you. Thank you for backhandedly bringing up my ties to Kissinger. Um, uh, <laughs> and your and your age. I saw both yeah, well, yeah, but I worked with him when I was a small child. Uh, but before you finish this and get to Jeffrey on this, the amount of time between when the president calls up that one star and the missiles leave the silos is three, four minutes? Yeah, it, it's pretty short. I mean, it's a very short line of code that is issued. Um, it depends on the circumstance, obviously, whether the um, the watch officer does have a script that he's supposed to use, like, Mr. President, would you like to uh, reach out to your Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense? Um, and any sane president would say, yes, I would really like some advice here. But of course, what we're worried about is the insane president who says, no, I'm good, launch. Um, and that's basically um, a matter of minutes before the launch officers in their silos um, uh, would get the codes, confirm targets, and turn keys. And and it's worth pointing out, I mean, the system seems insane now. To many, it seemed insane 30, 40 years ago. But it was built into the system because of a unique risk. We were worried that if somehow the Soviets thought they could decapitate the president, they could sort of kill the leadership in the United States, that we'd never be able to retaliate uh, against a nuclear attack, and that therefore speed was our friend. Speed was stabilizing. That I don't think was ever really true. But in today's world, it's it's just um, um, maintaining a system that makes no sense whatsoever. So, Jeffrey, you can answer this question in a couple of ways. Um, is is John hysterical here? Is he overreacting? Do you feel that he's badly adjusted and should seek another line of work, or is this real? It, it, in this particular <laughs> narrow case, David, I, I think you. I, I was going to say, do I get to use this to grind <laughs> other axes, or do I, I have to? I have to take this question as it is. And we encourage um, you no, to I, do, do as you will. Oh, I. I, I don't I don't think he's 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 overreacting. I mean, I have always been deeply troubled by the way we think about nuclear risk because we 
took all kinds of crazy risks to guard against the one thing that was likely to never happen, which is the Soviets would wake up one day and be like, yeah, today's a good day to start a nuclear war. Uh, and so that idea of a complete surprise attack out of the blue, everything that we have done is sort of organized around this most demanding and unlikely scenario. And, and it, it has just led to all of the stupid things we've done. And some of the stupid things we stopped doing, um, but you know, we used to fly bombers loaded with nuclear weapons from US air bases right up to Soviet airspace and then hit a U-turn and come back home. Uh, you know, just to just show we were ready. Um, we used to keep bombers on alert, uh, which we stopped doing, although the Congressional Posture Commission would like to start doing it again. So yeah, I mean, I think it's this this decision to organize our nuclear posture around the most unlikely risk and then therefore run all these other kinds of crazy risks for no good reason. And and I, I think it's worth pointing out here, I mean, um, this isn't a hypothetical risk of a president maybe being less than fully reliable. Um, my very complicated numerical uh, skills were put to the um, test this week uh, as I've been drafting up a, a, an article. There have been 13 presidents in the nuclear age, um, and two of them have been funny in the head enough um, that uh, their own staffs had to really go around the chain of command and build in some ad hoc nuclear safeguards. And one of those is under Nixon. Um, and we can talk about that, Jeffrey. I think you know this this story and have investigated it quite well with um, Secretary of Defense uh, Schlesinger. Uh, and then I think people hopefully will remember all the way back to 2021 um, when General Milley uh, got a letter from Nancy Pelosi, third in line to the president, saying, are you sure that Donald Trump can't just launch nuclear weapons? He said, oh, don't worry, ma'am. I got this covered. I'm part of the process. But of course, He's not legally part of the process. So, Jeffrey, let, maybe we let's break this down and talk about the earlier case because I know you love talking about Nixon and Kissinger and and late night drinking at the White House. But why don't you give people a, a glimpse into that story? Yeah, I mean the the short version is that Nixon had an extremely serious drinking problem that was almost certainly a way of medicating uh, his deep unhappiness and and depression, and so. You know, we that's now quite well documented. There's a, a particularly hilarious telcon between uh, Kissinger and Brent Scowcroft, where the British Prime Minister is trying to call Nixon, and the two of them are discussing about how to how to put the British Prime Minister off because uh, Nixon's drunk. And I mean, they're just very direct about that. Um, and at the end, uh, when things started to really uh, close in around Nixon. Um, there's a, a, a story that Jim Schlesinger used to tell, although, you know, is he exaggerating? Is he not? I, I think it's very hard to, to tell. Um, but that he was encouraging people in the chain of command, if they got a funny order from the president, maybe to check in with him before doing anything about it, uh, which is completely inappropriate, completely out of the line of chain of command. And, and I have my doubts about whether he did it, but if he did, good on him. Um, because, you know, just you clearly had a president experiencing enormous amounts of personal stress. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's not so strange for presidents to go funny in the head. You know, it's this is a pressure cooker of a job that attracts very strange people who make sometimes inexplicable decisions. And, you know, I mean, 
I think we can go through all the precedents and there are just moments when they do weird, weird things because it's a weird, weird job for a really weird person. It's uh, like the old joke, friends don't let friends drive drunk. They also don't let presidents nuke drunk, right? You want to... Yeah, but they don't have to be drunk. You know, we had a president who for two years was non-compass much of the time, uh, Reagan, and his staff literally did not talk to him from sort of late afternoon until the next morning um, for, for, for that reason. Um, uh, but we've also had situations where, you know, there have been mistakes in the system, right? You know, Brzezinski got an alert at one point that the missiles were coming, that, you know, the Russians got an alert a few years later that the missiles were coming. Um, and so it's also possible that a sane president, um, but one who trusted the system too much, could also trigger something, right? I mean... Oh, it, I, I it, think absolutely. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think decision-making is hard and presidents are always making decisions under incredible situations of uncertainty. And radar blips wouldn't cause you to start a nuclear war unless there was a crisis underway, and, and then it might. And so, uh, you know, I, I always think about the Boston Marathon bombing, how much false information there was in the first few hours of that. That's going to be true, I think, in any international crisis. There's going to be all kinds of foul, false information flying around. And even a president we think of as largely sane might make a bad decision. It, I mean, you don't have to go back to the Boston bombing. You could look at the um, the rocket bombing of the hospital in Gaza, right? The first few hours of that were, I mean, Jeffrey, I know you and your whole teams who do open source were really busy and so were Bellingcat and others trying to figure out what actually happened. But the the early reporting has now become what people believe to have happened, that people still blame Israel for having conducted a, a, a bombing on that hospital, which never happened. Yeah, but actually, if you go back through those 13, I was just sort of doing this in my head. There was an incident like this under Nixon. There was an incident like this under Carter. I mean, a, a close call incident. There was a close call incident under um, Reagan. I know that, you know, I talked to Tony Lake, who was the national security advisor during the Clinton administration, and he considered the Taiwan Straits incident to be a moment where we got very close to all out war with China, much closer than a lot of people think that we did. You know, you go through... And this is not actually a rare occurrence. It's a common occurrence. Yeah. There was an incident under under Obama when um, one of our wings of ICBMs went offline. And at first, nobody was really sure whether this was a cyber attack, a technical failure, turned out to be a, 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 a glitch in our own system. But early on, nobody was sure about that. And, and um, all of these things, if you have the other thing, other crises going on, a president who's not all there could lead presidents to to do the wrong thing. And I think that's where this question comes up, which is, can you put safeguards into the system, um, none of which will be perfect, but that would require other senior Senate-confirmed or legally empowered um, um, people to advise the president. And that's where this question has come up, whether can you, can, can you insert the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs to make sure the president just can't bypass well, can you, can you? I mean, it's an interesting question, Jeff, because the other thing that strikes me about this is in the Nixon case, Haldeman determined that Nixon was non-compass and turned to Kissinger for a reaction. So they came up with a workaround. In the Brzezinski case, you know, he 
drew certain conclusions. In the Russian case, we know that certain conclusions were drawn. I, I, you know, and and I, you know, it, it happened under Trump, where Trump would call um, the Secretary of Defense and, and Jim Mattis in the at night and say, "It's time we nuke North Korea." And Mattis said, "Interesting idea, Mr. President. Let's talk about it in the morning." And he'd come up with an informal workaround to avoid this. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think of the relationship between the informal workarounds and and formal proscriptions of authority. Look, I mean, I think informal workarounds are better than nothing. I mean, if 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 you're around a president who seems to have lost it, then you do what you have to do. But it is deeply alarming to me that we've created this system where we need informal workarounds, where we are constantly worried um, that if the president's out of it, the president has this unfettered power to do something absolutely crazy. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm one who tends to think that the problem is the posture, that at the end of the day, it's just too much power to give one person because there is no reasonable safeguard. Right. The election is the is just not a good enough safeguard because you don't elect people every day, even if you elect a perfectly reasonable person. Um, you know, you have no guarantee that they won't suffer cognitive decline, um, that they won't just make a mistake. Uh, and so I, I'm I am someone who thinks that we should not be in the business of using nuclear weapons unless we know for a fact that nuclear weapons have been used against us. Uh, and that's a, I know that's an extreme position, but it just seems to me that in an era in which there's so much misinformation and confusion, this is just not a decision you want to rush. You want to really be sure um, that this needs to happen. John, this is a little bit like tattoos, right? Like you don't want your kid to get a tattoo because you can't undo it. You know, it's a bad idea to do things <laughs> that you might think better of later, right? Um, yeah, although, you know, with laser removal, it's painful, but, you know, they're, they're, uh, but, you know, like the old song, plutonium is forever. I mean, nu once you use nuclear weapons, like it, it, it that, that's going to That's how you more. got rid of your Oppenheimer tramp stamp? <laughs> I, I had a small, small, on the small of my back, I don't even want to tell you what used to be there. Yeah, I had Glenn Seaborg's signature. Um, so uh, what's interesting to me is that for issues that the public is aware of, like President Trump uh, wanting to get out of NATO, right? Um, the, the U.S. Congress has come together in a bipartisan way and included in the National Defense Authorization Act um, uh, legislation. It's a law that basically says the president cannot withdraw from NATO without congressional approval. It's not clear to me that that's constitutional, by the way, and there will be you know legal challenges should Donald Trump win and try to pull out of NATO. But my concern is that there's so few people that spend time like us enjoying the uh, insanity of nuclear decision-making and um, uh, law that understand that the president, in fact, can do this on his own. Um, and I think it, the more people that did understand that, they would say, you know what, if the president has to, if the president wants to order an airstrike or wants to send in the 101st Airborne, he has to talk to the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense has to issue a written order to the combatant commander, and then those troops move or those planes fly. But for nukes, everything is different. And if it works for everything else, why shouldn't it work for nuclear weapons? And I think that's a conversation that's not happening. Um, and one of the reasons that, um, you know, I wanted to ask Jake publicly whether he thinks this is a good system to hand off, whether it's to Trump or any other president, um, it, it, it doesn't, it's not necessary and it's pretty dangerous. 
Well, why don't you ask Jeff that question? Jeff, is this necessary? And no. <laughs> so let me ask you, Jeff. I mean, yeah. look, I'm I'm going to do something really dangerous. I'm going to make you omnipotent. Oh wow! Uh, and, and and within within the bounds of you know reason. I mean, how would you change the system? How would you put constraints on a president um, who may or may not be all there in a way that is sustainable and and is consistent with the rule of law? So I think. The first thing to do is to just eliminate the posture of launch on warning. Um, if if we're going to be attacked in a surprise attack with nuclear weapons, we need to have designed a posture that will allow a president to ride that out. Because the current idea of launching on uh, radar detections, basically, and satellite detections, and doing so under these enormously compressed uh, timelines, it's just a, a recipe for disaster. Uh, so, I mean, if it were up to me, we just, we just wouldn't do that. Um, and I, I think that there's no reason that we couldn't do that. You know, I mean, the reality is, is that the United States has very capable ballistic missile submarines that are at sea loaded with vast numbers of nuclear weapons. Uh, and so even if Russia or China could kill the president and could eliminate uh, every missile uh, on land and destroy every bomber, which, by the way, I think is a pretty tall order. Um, the reality is, is there's still going to be a bunch of submarines at sea that are going to make that the worst day of their lives. So to me, we just need to stop focusing on this one scenario um, to the detriment of all others. And I think once we do that, um, then I think, you know, a lot of these things get less complicated. But it, but let's say for a second we did that because I made you omnipotent because I, I would trust you more than most people um, who might become president. Um, that doesn't stop a president from saying, yeah, I want to launch one of the ballistic missile submarine um, missiles. Um, do it, right? So how do you build safeguards into that regardless of what the posture looks like? Well, I mean, I think one of the, one of the issues is we have all these pre-planned options for the president. And so, you know, there's like the Denny's menu. Uh, which the president just selects off of. So the kind of the nightmare scenario is the president wants to do this. And because all this work has been done to prepare the president for this moment when a decision has to be made in two minutes, then it's lying around like a loaded gun. Uh, I think if you didn't have that tight time pressure, then you know the president would have to pick up the phone and would have to be like, I I feel like nuking Guam today. You know, do we have any do we have any plans on the books? You know, and they would say, Well, Mr. President, we do. Uh, Guam's actually ours, and so no, we don't have plans. But did, you know, I think if you don't have everything queued up for the president, then the president actually has to rely on the people around him now or her. Now, I, may, maybe that's still too much. Um, you know, I, I would still like uh, a, a process that was much more regular. Um, but I just think not putting the president in a position to do it in two minutes, but rather making that process take time and involve other people, uh, I, I think is, to me, that's fine, right? Because then that gives you really just what I would call slack in the system. So, I mean, David, I want to ask you, because you obviously have a lot of knowledge in terms of how national security advisors and presidents have worked. Jeffrey, I just worry that that's still too ad hoc for me, right? If if what we're worried about in at least one of these cases is a president like President Trump saying, you know, I need a war. 
I, I need a conflict because that allows me then to enact martial law. That allows me to sort of seize power indefinitely. Uh, or I just want to show that I can get rid of a North Korea and that will get other countries in line. He can still pick up the phone. And when the watch officer says, well, Mr. President, you know, we need more time to plan that, he'd be like, no, I want you to launch a nuclear weapon on Pyongyang now. And uh, that still would happen, right? I mean, and if he says, and don't tell the Secretary of Defense, I order you not to tell the commander strategic command, that one-star general or colonel would have to follow that order. And so I, I think about the legal safeguards, whether changing the change of command, if we had a Congress that actually worked changing the law um, so that the first use of nuclear weapons would be consistent with, say, the war powers under the Constitution, which belong to Congress, not to the president. Um, that may be, you know, even too naive for an arms controller like me. Um, but it strikes me that we need to think about more um, um, uh, sustainable, durable solutions in the face of somebody like uh, uh, President Trump being reelected. But David, let me let me ask you because you you know you've. I think you said at the at the conversation with Jake, you now have uh, talked with or interviewed every national security advisor um, that's that's been alive in your lifetime. I mean, do you think that the national security advisor system understands this risk enough, or do they just trust the system to work no matter what? I don't think the David. national security advisor system is terribly well attuned to this particular risk. This particular risk resides more directly in the defense command and control system and sort of outside the advisory role of the national security system. But having said that, and it goes back to our earlier point, almost every White House has an informal process that's more powerful than the formal process. There are people the president trusts. There are people who advise the president, who can question the actions of the president, and so forth, traditionally. You know, and this is one of the things that I think is, is, is most concerning here. And typically, there are checks built into that based on responsible human beings um, uh, acting in the best interests of not just the country, but of their group, their, you know, their, 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 their little coterie of, of, of officials. What's worrisome is if you get into a system in which the president coming into office has systematically eliminated any possibility of checks, where the president coming in has exclusively thought, sought loyal yes-men who will um, stand behind any decision they make, never question them. Now, that's never happened in our history. We've gotten closer, we've gotten farther. But that is the explicit plan of Donald Trump. It's the explicit plan of Donald Trump to get a bunch of people who are willing to violate the Constitution, break the laws of the United States, compromise U.S. national interests, you know, getting out of NATO or, or you know, not providing uh, people with proper care advice on COVID that leads to a million people being dead is a sign that of those judgments. And that's what worries me, um, uh, because we don't have formal checks and we don't have informal checks. Uh, now, having said that, let me ask both of you a question. How do other countries do this? 
Um, it's a really good question, David, and I, I think people would be surprised to learn, one, we don't know for every country, right? These are mostly opaque systems. We have a fairly good sense on how the British and the French do it because we're allies and work with them. But um, Jeffrey's worked on, obviously, the Chinese system for a long time and I think also knows about the Russian system. Um, but I think that they all do it differently, and and very few of them do as authoritatively um, uh, singular as, as we do. But Jeffrey, why don't you talk about some of the Chinese well, and Russian systems? Yeah. I mean, Bruno Tertre and I wrote a monograph on this, um, uh, where we looked at the authorization, much less the ability, uh, you know, sometimes people exceed their authorization, but we looked at the authorization procedures, uh, in every country. And I, I think in general, the answer is we don't, we don't know a lot, uh, Countries that have prime ministers tend to have collective decision making. Countries that have presidents tend to invest that authority in the president. So I think, you know, the Russian system, um, it involves in some way the sec uh the 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 you know the equivalent of the Secretary of Defense and the the equivalent of the well and the chief of the general staff. Uh but you know, the Russian system is weird because it's just sort of assumed they would never disagree with the president, right? So <laughs> There's a kind of, there, yeah. There's I a good mean, reason to believe that people would not disagree with Vladimir Putin. So in, that's in, fair. In, indeed. Um, so that's one one option. The, the Chinese system is very opaque. Um, and, you know, my research suggests that it used to be opaque precisely because nobody wanted to answer those questions. Uh, nobody wanted to say like, well, what would happen if Mao Zedong died? Uh, because that was a difficult question to answer for reasons that had nothing to do with nuclear weapons. Uh, it's very hard to know what that system is now. I mean, given how much Xi Jinping has consolidated power, my suspicion is he has the ability or at least the authority to make this decision himself, but we don't really see into Chinese politics. And so we don't really know, um, we don't know what the Procedures that are written down are, and I think Chinese politics is especially a case, uh, which is probably true in all cases to some extent, where informal practices matter more than anything else. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's that's a long-winded way of saying people countries don't like talking about this. We don't really know, um, but in general, if you have a presidential system, there tends to be a much more consolidation of authority in that figure um, than if you have a prime ministerial one. Okay, so I want to turn to John for a question here, but as everybody knows, at this point, we take a break and we say to everybody who's listening, who's not a member, we really enjoyed having you listen. And if you want to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of all of our podcasts, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month, you end up being a member, you get to listen to all of everything. There's so many podcasts, it's really a bargain. And There are nine more days left in the Christmas shopping Nine season, more days, so yeah, is- you buy it for a friend. But having said this, um, uh, at this moment, we have to say goodbye to you until you do that. Uh, so if you're uh, n- not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by. 